This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. With the Capital One Walmart Rewards Card, you can earn 5% back at Walmart online, 2% at Walmart in-store, restaurants and travel, and 1% everywhere else. When you want all that, you need the Capital One Walmart Rewards Card. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A. We arrive at the offices of Las Cumbres in Santa Fe, New Mexico, on a cold, gray day. And that's where we meet one of their employees, Raisi Yañez. Raisi is in his mid-twenties with a boyish face, and he's sort of a helpful, gentle giant. I am from Torreón, Mexico. We are Christians. We, we are musicians. My wife, she was the, the singer and I was the bass player. And we fell in love. Oh, my God. Las Cumbres is one of the largest social service providers in New Mexico, and Raisi works for them as a family navigator, which means that he's a sort of fixer to immigrant families in Santa Fe. If you need help registering for school, you go to Raisi. Also, if you need to get a state ID or get vaccines or get help finding a doctor or getting to court, Raisi is your guy. And while immigrants have been coming to this country for a very long time and figuring out how to live their lives, the group of people that Raisi is working with right now are facing a different situation. They are newly arrived migrants who have managed to enter the United States at a time when the Trump administration has essentially closed the door for asylum seekers with a thud. And he does a lot of this work out of his own car, visiting immigrant families and asylum seekers all over northern New Mexico. Today, he's agreed to let us tag along with him. Just let me clean my car because I have kids. <laughs> that is after he makes some space for us in the car. Three, two, and one. Oh my God! Really? Yes. Wow, you have your hands full, sir. Yes. From NPR and Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today on our show, we spend a day with newly arrived migrant families in Santa Fe, New Mexico, families who are seeking asylum. In 2019, the Trump administration began a policy called the Migrant Protection Protocols, or MPP. It's also known as the Remain in Mexico policy. The Trump administration is expanding its Remain in Mexico policy. The Trump administration announced today asylum seekers on the southern border will be forced to stay in Mexico. More than 10,000 asylum seekers at the southern border have been sent back under the controversial Remain in Mexico policy. Only a very small percentage of asylum seekers are allowed into the U.S. to wait for their hearings. And these exemptions are incredibly inconsistent. This policy is currently being challenged in federal court. Today on our show, we're going to meet some of these people who have been allowed into the United States. We're going to spend some time with Fernanda Chavarri, who is a former Latino USA producer and now an immigration reporter at Mother Jones. Last fall, Fernanda, along with fellow Mother Jones reporter Julia Lurie, took a trip to northern New Mexico. They went on a ride-along with social worker Raisi Yañez and spent a day meeting families new to Santa Fe in order to get a portrait of asylum seekers who are navigating how to start a new life from scratch while also being stuck in limbo in the United States. Hey, Fernanda. 
Hi, Maria. So you went to New Mexico in order to spend the day with this guy who is like, um, he's like a social worker slash fixer for newly arrived families who are seeking asylum in the United States. So what does he do for them and why? So he's the guy that when he gets a phone call from one of the families that he's helping and the person on the other line says, I, I think I have to go to this lawyer meeting or I have to go to this doctor's appointment for my kid. Can you help me? And then he goes and picks them up and tells them what to bring with them. And he's sort of just doing every little thing you can think of to help people get from point A to point B and to figure out what they need in the process. This is a city of under 150,000 people. So this is not an L.A. or New York or Chicago. When it comes to having these safety nets and communities already set up for new arriving families, northern New Mexico is really tough to navigate if you don't have a car. And in fact, the families that we visited don't have cars. So you can drive for 10, 15 minutes and you find yourself in a fairly rural area. Take us to the beginning of your day with him. So the day starts bright and early. Hola, buenos días. ¿Cómo está? Raisi basically spends his day behind the wheel. Muy bien, ya está lista. And also making and receiving okay. a ton of phone calls. Unos tres minutos. So we pull up to the apartment where we're going to pick up the first family. Um, so wait, whose house is this? This is where we're going to the first family right now? With the first family. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to not have this out just when we go in and stuff so we don't get scared. Yeah. And I should mention here that the people that we met that day allowed us to spend time with them and to record audio, but they asked us not to use their names for multiple reasons, but the biggest one being that they feel very vulnerable and they don't want any of this to affect their pending cases with U.S. immigration. So we pull up to the home of the first family we visit and we enter their one-bedroom apartment. It's small and the living room has been made into a bedroom. There are six people living here. And that's where we meet a woman in her late 30s and her 17-year-old teenage daughter. They're from El Salvador, and they've been in the U.S. for almost three months. Today, Raisi is taking them to a medical clinic. The teenager is going to start school soon, so she needs some vaccinations, and she needs to be able to prove that she has the vaccines in order to enroll. No tienes nervios? So they jump in the car with us, and we head out to the clinic. The mom was definitely more nervous than the teenager. She had this little nervous laugh throughout the morning and the, and the car rides. She knows that this is good, but she's also scared to send her daughter to a new place and to not be there to watch over her shoulder. When we get there, she tells the nurse that her daughter had gotten vaccinated when she was a baby in El Salvador. But they didn't bring her vaccination records when they left last summer. So her daughter is going to have to get five shots that morning, three on one arm, two on the other. The side effects are just pain at the site, you know, soreness. And moving the, the arms is the best, the best way to help move it through quicker. Bueno, en el caso de ella, no. No hay probabilidad de que los mueva porque están rígidos. But the thing is that she 
can barely move her arms. The mom points to her daughter and asks the nurse if she noticed that she has a disability. She suffers from arthrogryposis. It's a congenital condition. That means she can't move her arms. They are sort of locked straight down along her torso. And her hands are perpetually curled up towards her wrists. The mom and daughter have been inseparable their whole lives. So for the mom, it's not easy to think of her daughter going to a special ed classroom in Santa Fe where she's not going to be there. So she's like nervous about tomorrow because she feels good when she can see her and she knows she can catch her if she falls. So tomorrow she won't be there to catch her if she falls and she's starting to get a little nervous about tomorrow. So Fernanda, is it the fact that the teenage daughter has a physical disability that this is what essentially allowed them to get into the United States. Some people might think that if there's a physical disability, they would have been not allowed in. So technically, in the actual writing of the migrant protection protocols, the Remain in Mexico policy, it says that people from vulnerable groups may be allowed in and not be forced to return to Mexico. And that could include pregnant women, and it could also include people with disabilities. So it's not super, super clear why U.S. immigration officials let them remain in the United States, and I should mention under supervision during the duration of their asylum case, but it's most likely because of the daughter's disability. At least that is what should have happened. But I know from speaking with lawyers on the ground and humanitarian groups that the rules are not being followed as they should for these programs, and a lot of people who probably should be allowed in are not being allowed in. Let's go back to that day now. They're in Santa Fe. What happens? The nurse came out and gave the mom a couple of forms that she needed to fill out. So we finish filling out the forms, and then we look outside the window. (laughs) It was the first snow of the season in northern New Mexico. (laughs) So we open the door and step out into the courtyard. And the 17-year-old who was wearing cropped leggings and a hoodie had been complaining about the cold the whole morning, but not anymore. Not at that moment. (laughs) She's looking up at the sky and laughing at the tiny snowflakes that have landed on her mom's eyelashes. Her mom cannot stop smiling. She loves seeing the snow, and she said she wanted to see it in real life because... (laughs) Up until that point, she had only seen it in TV and in movies. We step back into the waiting room, and not long after that, the teenager gets called in. She gets her shots. She comes out only a couple minutes after that. She did great. Very great. Okay. And says that she barely felt the first shot. But that the last one really hurt. We leave the clinic and get back in Raisi's car. It's once we're back in the car and headed home that the mom and teenage daughter start to open up a little bit. 
They talk to us about their time in El Salvador and about being detained in the United States. They left El Salvador because they struggled to pay for the daughter's medications. It was really hard to be able to go to work and leave her daughter alone, so money was difficult to come by. And the neighborhood over the last few years started to get a little bit more violent, basically. Like, every year it just started to get a little bit worse for them. So it got to the point where they said they barely left the house, and they decided to leave and come and reunite with some family that they had in the United States. So they head to the U.S.-Mexico border. But once they get there, they find out that they may have to wait months to even apply for asylum. So they join a group of people and decide that they're going to cross the Rio Grande with the idea that they would turn themselves into Border Patrol officials the second they touch U.S. soil. That sounds like an incredibly risky decision to make. Why would the mom and the daughter say, we're just going to cross, we're not going to wait, you know, quote-unquote, line to get in? Why did they make that decision? So I've heard this from a lot of people that I've talked to at the border in Arizona, in California, and in Texas. And that is the United States has for over a year and a half been forcing people to get on these completely unofficial wait lists at the border so that U.S. immigration officials only take a handful of people a day. But what this has done is it's made it so that families are waiting for months and months in these makeshift camps at the border or overcrowded shelters just so that they can get their moment to approach a port of entry and say, my name is so-and-so, I'm here to seek asylum. So for this mom and daughter, the idea of waiting in this completely foreign territory in a place where they felt extremely vulnerable, that just wasn't an option. So they chose to cross the river. They did it at night and they came out of the river cold and wet to Border Patrol agents who were already flashing their lights at the group on the U.S. side. The agents told them to sit on the ground and take off their shoes. They left them there for a long time. And the teenager says that it felt like about three hours uh, just sitting on the on the ground right after the cross the river. And she says that they were very cold and it was terrible. And the border agents, the mom says that they didn't really seem to care that her teenage daughter had special needs. At one point, she said that on top of sort of feeling very uh, afraid of the border agents, they were made fun of. No, no les importa. She says that one of the U.S. border guards told them, welcome to your new castle, in Spanish. It sounds pretty harrowing. And to be going through with this with your daughter and in the freezing cold and not feeling like you're getting any kind of well, care. Yeah, she, from the moment that she started talking about her time in U.S. detention, uh, she just kept crying and her daughter was sitting in the back seat of the car looking down and chiming in from time to time. And what the mother told us is that she really hadn't had a chance to talk about this before until now with us. And while they're somewhat 
lucky, quote unquote, to be in the United States now. Um, They're with family and they're dealing with their day-to-day lives, but there's also still a looming uncertainty about whether they will get asylum and be able to stay. We pull up to their apartment and it stops snowing by now. The daughter says she's not too sore from the shots, but that she's getting cold and she's ready to go inside. We say goodbye, and Raisi tells her to be ready by 9 a.m. tomorrow. He's coming to pick her up so they can meet with the special ed teacher at what will be her new school, at least for now. Coming up on Latino USA, we continue on our ride-along. Stay with us. No te vayas. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp, a truly affordable online counseling service. Fill out a questionnaire online and get matched with a licensed counselor best suited to your mental health needs. Whether it's depression, anxiety, or trauma, BetterHelp will help you overcome what stands in the way of your happiness. Learn more at BetterHelp.com and get 10% off your first month with promo code LATINO. BetterHelp. Get help anytime, anywhere. Change is hard, transitions can be even harder, but they're also an opportunity to explore and discover and reimagine things you thought you knew. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, the new host of NPR's TED Radio Hour. And with all this in mind, we've decided to make my entire first episode about reinvention. Subscribe or listen right now. Hey, we're back. In this part of the conversation, Fernanda Chavarri, immigration reporter at Mother Jones, tells us about the people she and her co-reporter, Julia Lurie, meet next in Santa Fe, a young Honduran man and his mother. So we're continuing on the day with Raisi. You have left the doctor's office with mom and daughter. And where did you go next with the social worker? So at this point, it's about one in the afternoon, and Raisi says that we're going to go meet a young man from Honduras. And what is the nature of your visit today? What do you have planned to do? Vamos ahorita ir al MBD to get an ID. So in Santa Fe, you can get a state ID? Yes. No matter your immigration status? Yes. We pull up to their home, which looks similar to all the other small houses that are adobe-style brick, very southwestern vibes. We walk up to the front door, and we notice this little American flag hanging from a planter. And the 21-year-old's mother greets us at the door. Oiga, pregunta. ¿Las banderas americanas las puso usted? Yo así, por mí, o por qué le gusta. She lets us in, and then the first thing we see inside is this huge Honduran flag hanging inside the main wall. 
Yeah, the U.S. flag outside, the Honduras flag, the big Honduras flag in the living room. Then we notice her son. He's holding an envelope with the paperwork so he can get an ID. He arrived in New Mexico last summer, and he came to reunite with his mother, who had been in the U.S. for more than a decade already. Baisi wanted to take him to the DMV so that he doesn't have to carry around his Honduran passport with him all the time anymore. One of the reasons why he left Honduras is because there were gang members who were trying to force him to join their gang. And when he refused, he put himself in a lot of danger. So he arrived at the Juarez-El um, Paso border, and he actually waited. He tried to get on the waiting list. He knew that the wait was going to be long. He waited for almost two months, and he was still not able to present himself. So while he was at the border waiting, he's on this list. He's doing what officials have told him to do. He sees somebody, and he didn't get too specific about who this somebody was, but says that it was a person connected to the same gangs in Honduras that he was trying to escape from. So he realizes that he wasn't safe in Juarez either. So he decides to cross and turn himself in as soon as he reached the United States. He turns himself in to Border Patrol agents who take him to a detention facility in El Paso, and he was detained in facilities that were pretty horrible. There were men in standing room only cells, unable to sit down, let alone lay down. Women and kids that were sleeping on the freezing cold floor. He says he had been drinking water from the sink in those overcrowded cells. At one point, they shut off the water, and his throat was so dry and he was so thirsty that he had to drink water from the toilet. He eventually got sick. He told the guards that he was feeling ill, and they asked him to fill out a request to be seen by a medical professional. It took days for him to see a doctor. And once he did, they said he was contagious. So they gave him a little bit of medication. Y después me encerraron a mí solo en un cuartito. Estuve ocho días ahí. And put him in isolation for eight days. Porque tenía el gripe y podía contagiar a los demás. Oh, yeah. He went to the Xbox. Mm. But Pero, for having the flu, basically. He slept on a cold cement bench and ran out of ways to stay warm in what felt like an icebox. Y yo para no aguantar frío, lo que hacía con el papel higiénico, lo mojaba y se lo tiraba al, al aire para no taparlo. So he started wetting toilet paper and tossing it up to the air vent, trying to cover it up and prevent more cold air from coming in. He says that that's something he just came up with out of desperation because he felt like he was going to freeze to death. So we talked about kind of the special circumstances of a mom and her daughter being allowed into the United States to apply for asylum. But in this case, we're talking about a 21-year-old Honduran man. He's able-bodied. He would seem to be precisely the person that would not be allowed in. So the thing that's interesting about his case is that this 21-year-old was able to be released from immigration detention because of his mom. 
She came to the U.S. 15 years ago. She left him and his other siblings back in Honduras, uh, and she would send money back home. But while here in the United States, she was the victim of domestic violence. And because she was a victim of a crime and she cooperated with law enforcement, she qualified for something called a U-Visa. People who have U-Visas can actually petition for their spouse or their children to also have legal status here in the United States. So that's why her son was able to enter the U.S. and they're now waiting to see if he'll be able to get that visa while also waiting on his asylum case. And while all of that waiting happens, he's starting to sort of form a life in Santa Fe. He's been trying to take care of some things, including getting an ID. So we are at the DMV, is that where we are? Yes. After about 10 minutes, a woman who works for the DMV comes over to check on him. Passport, so that's identity. Good. What type of uh, documents would you have? And then once she sees what he has, she tells him that it's not enough. We currently living with somebody? Yes, with mom. So if he's listed on the rental agreement, we can accept that as So the woman says that he needs to show more proof that he lives in Santa Fe now, like a letter from the school where he takes English classes or his name on the lease at the house that they rent. So after realizing that he was not going to be able to get an ID that day, we decide that we want to stop by and get some lunch. We pull up to a strip mall and the young Honduran man requested Panda Express. So as we walk out of getting Panda Express, Raisi says that we must stop by at Five Guys to try one of his favorite things in the world, a strawberry bacon milkshake. He, of course, tried to get us to try it. Julia first. Para que salga el bacon. So the bacon Yeah, you gotta like really get in there. All the bacon bits won't make it up the street. All right, all right. It's good when it's sweet and then. I was off the hook because I'm vegetarian, but Julia and the man from Honduras had to try that strawberry bacon milkshake. Did you feel the bacon coming out? El tocino así en pedacitos o qué? Es que lo lo mezclan con todo, ¿no? Lo lo parten la licuadora. Sí. Le gustó. And to our surprise, he really liked it. No está suave. Sí. Todo. Dale two out of two. <laughs> You've converted two people. As we drive back, he starts talking a little bit more about his time in the U.S. He's picking up a few words in English, and he has found a group of guys to play soccer with, which makes him pretty happy. But one of the more challenging parts for him has been reconnecting with his mother. Back at the house after lunch, we asked if we could talk about this with him and his mom. She had told us earlier in the day that she was thrilled to be reunited with her son, but was really nervous at first because she was worried that he might reject her. Y mejor decidí venirme. Fifteen years is a very long time, and this man is now 21 years old. So the last time that they were together, he was a child, and he's now an adult. And he feels quite disconnected from his mom. No sé, me entiende, porque la mayoría de tiempo yo me crecí con mi abuela, me entiende. Que va, sea, sí sé que ella es mi madre, va, pero no es como el mismo amor que me, que con la que me creció con. This is tough to translate. Um, he says that yes, he knows that's his mom, but it's really not the love that he has for his grandmother, because that's who he sees as a real mom. The mom has found a counselor through Las Cumbres. 
¿Y se siente bien el hablar de eso? ¿Duele un poquito a veces? Es, es mire, es doloroso para uno volver a empezar atrás. She's going to a mental health expert, and it's sort of new for her, but she says that she's really enjoying being able to talk about it as hard as it is. And the son has found himself more in deep conversations with friends and neighbors. Reporting on immigration for so long, I've seen this theme again and again. Relationships between parents and children who have been apart for a long time gets really complicated and sometimes really fraught after they're reunited, even when the parent left their children specifically so that the children could have a better life. From the big relationship stuff to the daily life, they're having to learn how to be together again. So, Fernanda, you were able to do a kind of micro-zoom into the life of two families. But you and I have been reporting on this issue for many, many years. When you step back, what's the takeaway that you have? So, Maria, we talked about how the mother of the Honduran man that we talked to has found a counselor that she finds helpful. But it's important to point out that she's been in the United States for years now. It's a little different for people who are just now settling in. We spoke with Julian Ford, a psychiatry professor at the University of Connecticut. He specializes in trauma, and particularly trauma among children and families. And he told us that generally dealing with trauma and mental health isn't a priority for people who just arrive in a new place. The immediate need when people are just simply trying to survive and find some kind of a safe haven is not trauma therapy. It's really psychological first aid. And Ford says that people don't always respond well to what we think as traditional talk therapy or medications, and especially at first. What's important is something else. It is actually being able to just be connected to one's community, to have opportunities to share one's story and get support from peers and other people like oneself who share similar values and traditions and have some shared history. When we first got in the car with Raisi that morning, we thought maybe he'd be having lots of deep conversations with his clients throughout the day. But then it became clear pretty quickly that that was not Raisi's MO. And that's very intentional. And why do you do this? Because I haven't been in, into that. I no he estado in ese tipo de situaciones. Pero I would like to all the people do that to me if I go through all the hard stuff. Make me forget about what's happening in my life. Families who have just arrived need to figure out the basics first. Where to live, how to support themselves, anything to feel control over their lives again. Especially as their immigration cases are still uncertain, and they don't know if they're going to be deported. Our thanks to Fernanda Chavarri for that story. And to hear her reporting along with Julia Lurie, listen to the Mother Jones podcast at motherjones.com.
This episode was produced by Julia Inés Esparza with help from Janice Yamoka and edited by Sofia Palizacar. The Latino USA team includes Miguel Macias, Luis Treyes, Antonia Cerejido, Alisa Escarce, and Alejandra Salazar with help from Joanne DeLuna. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Additional engineering this week by Leah Shaw. Our production manager is Natalia Fiederholtz. Our digital editor is Amanda Alcantara. Our intern is Julia Rocha. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again for our next episode. And in the meantime, look for us on all of your social media. Hasta la próxima. Ciao. Latino USA is made possible in part by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. The Annie E. Casey Foundation creates a brighter future for the nation's children by strengthening families, building greater economic opportunity, and transforming communities. And the Heising Simons Foundation, unlocking knowledge, opportunity, and possibilities. More at hsfoundation.org. I'm Maria Hinojosa, next time on Latino USA. The story of a hate crime, an acid attack on a Peruvian-American man in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and what it tells us about hate crimes against Latinos in the United States. That's the most scared of my life. I thought I'm going to never show my boys anymore. No quiero dejarlos. That's next time on Latino USA.